Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We have made it to another Friday. It is also somehow December, the last month in the dumpster fire of a year we've been calling 2020. And I am so glad you're with us today. I think it's going to be a pretty fun show. Coming up, we're going to check in with Andrew Bird about his new Christmas album. If you'd asked me a few years ago uh, or told me that I was going to make a Christmas album, I would have thought, oh my God, (laughs) what kind of rut am I in? And later, we're going to learn about the history of sprinkles. Yes, sprinkles. But first, we're going to unpack the week that was with two delightful panelists. We have Meha Ahmad. She's a producer for WBEZ's Daily Talk Show Reset. Meha, hey. Hey, Greta. And Mariah Wolfel is a reporter at WBEZ. Mariah, hello. Hey, Greta. I am so excited to have both of you on Nerdette. This is very exciting. Yeah. I'm just going to keep using the word exciting over and over and over, apparently. Tell me more about the history of sprinkles. (laughs) I knew that one was going to pique your interest, Maha. You'll just have to listen to the segment, my friend. (laughs) So I want to start unpacking the weird week this was by discussing the very strange desert monolith situation that happened. Um, For those of you who haven't heard about it, in mid-November, this like giant metal monolith structure appeared in a remote Utah desert. Then it disappeared. Then a couple days later, a similar one popped up in Romania. We also have had another appearance, I think, in California. Uh, did you all follow this story at all? Maha, I feel like knowing you a little bit, this might be like just the weird conspiracy theory that you might become obsessed with. Yeah, I'm attracted to all conspiracy theory stories. Um, the one in Utah really freaked me out. Like the other ones, they kind of popped up and whatever. But like, I think there's one in Romania and then one in California. Yeah. But the one in Utah, apparently it's been there for years. And like they reported on this back in like 2016. And it might have even been there longer than that. Like that freaks me out. I'm like, you, just nobody noticed. <laughs> and then I think there, there, there's like a, a growing theory that it's from this artist who's been like dead for a decade. And so that kind of brings like this really creepy sort of ghost-like quality to this entire story. (laughs) So do you think it's aliens or do you just think it's like creepy and ghosty? I like whenever I can like attribute something to aliens. Um, And I like to sort of push that narrative out into the world. Like, yeah, like Roswell was real. (laughs) Like all that stuff. (laughs) Like, I'm going to go ahead and say yes, it was real. So what do you think, Mariah? Like, I mean, what are the odds that this is actually just like an elaborate marketing ploy for like the new Lady Gaga Oreos or something? (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, let's let's get into some deep conspiracy theories here. <laughs> um, no, I, I think it's so funny that, um, as Meha pointed out, that this has been here for years. And I don't think it's gone unnoticed. I feel like just the nature of 2020 was that so people freaked out about this monolith that was in the desert. But like, it probably 
didn't catch people's attention in the same way like right. four years ago. But because 2020, people are like, yes, <laughs> yep, yes, now we're being invaded by aliens because th- this is happening and that's a normal thing for this year. Yeah. Um, but I do feel like uh, to push back on your alien theory, Maha, I feel like it like in the New York Times story that I read, when people tried to like come down and dismantle this monolith and we saw the underbelly of this monolith and it was just like a hollow thing with a piece of plywood that like it stood upon. Um, so I feel like it would be higher tech if it were if it were aliens, but maybe that's part of their maybe that's part of the disguise. I don't know. So like what you're saying is that you don't think it's aliens because of the plywood. You don't think aliens would use plywood. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But they could maybe <laughs> Maybe because they know so much about my human brain, they know that I would think that they, <laughs> it wouldn't exactly be aliens if they used do. plywood. So they used plywood as a distraction. <laughs> what do you think, Maha? You wanted you wanted to push back on her pushback. I was gonna say, I'm like, let me have my beliefs, Mariah. <laughs> but I gotta say, like, when I this the second the the stories came out, though, I did think to myself, like you know, if it is like artists or pranksters or whatever, guys, not this year. Like, we've had enough. <laughs> You know, like murder hornets and like the mummies that everybody keeps trying to, you know, uh, open sarcophaguses. (laughs) Like we're white knuckling it, guys. Just save this for like next June. Like we just just can't take this right now. (laughs) Well, especially now, right? It's like, just give us these four weeks. Like, can we just please get through the year finally? You know, I'm looking for for a really quiet, low key December. I want like a boring December. So another thing that I'm super curious to talk to you two about is the Saved by the Bell reboot, which came out last week. This is based on the show that aired in the late 80s and early 90s and was syndicated well through the 90s. It's about a group of high school friends who are all, I don't know, kind of uh, beautiful and vapid, I think might be a fair way of describing the shenanigans that take place in Saved by the Bell. Um, Mariah, you did not see the original, right? Right. Yeah, no. And and you did get a chance to watch the first episode of the new of the reboot. I did, yeah. I watched the first episode. I thought it was re- really cute. Um, I did, I, you know, I feel like being in Chicago, I'm I'm kind of a sucker for a school closing narrative, just because it's like <laughs> such a real part of this city's like most recent history. Totally, and and like issues around educational equity. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I thought that this this show, this episode specifically, was a bit on the nose um they like have these character tropes and then like I feel like they just really uh hit everything just very obviously and on the nose but it was cute it was fine um I I want to hear I want to hear from a Saved by the Bell loyalist about what they thought about the reboot yeah Maha what what was your take on the pilot I was a huge Saved by the Bell loyalist yeah um that was my jam, man. Like I watched like the movies too. Like Saved by the Bell goes to Las Vegas. The, the summer at the, the at the resorts. I remember the summer over. at the resort. Yep. Um, I even watched like Good Morning Miss Bliss, which was the original, original Saved by the Bell. What? Um, oh yeah, it was with like Haley Mills as the teacher, and it was actually supposed to be surrounded by her, but they realized that like nobody cared and cared more about the students, so they 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 switched it to refocus on them and make it about you know and turned it into Saved by the Bell. So um, yeah, so definitely a loyalist. I will say it's hard to like this if you didn't watch the original, right? Because like you're seeing a lot of the original characters, you know, like Zach and Kelly and mm-hmm. uh, Slater, and they all come back. So like. It kind of reminds me of the Boy Meets World reboot, Girl Meets World, (laughs) where 
I think that you, the people who really love that were the people who loved Boy Meets World. So it was like not really as much for the kids as it was for the people who were kids in 1995. Like, right, right. So I, I liked the Save by the Bell reboot, but I couldn't imagine like the current generation really getting into it. Yeah, I could see that. So let's listen to a clip. This is probably my favorite moment from the pilot. And I think it speaks to what you're saying, Mariah, about it feeling a little tropey. But I don't know. I also thought it was like just earnest enough to be kind of nice. This is when Daisy, who's played by Husky Velasquez, tries to step down as student council president because the election uh, like wasn't fair. And the principal, who's played by John Michael Higgins, tries to convince her otherwise. But you don't have to bow out. You did technically win. Yeah, but I wanted to win the right way. I wanted it to be fair. Oh. Have a seat. Listen, these kids, they can be sheltered and clueless. But there's one thing they get right. They never feel guilty about taking their seat at the table. And I know you deserve a seat there, too. And if you don't take it, Daisy... How else are we going to make this place a little more fair? Yeah. Thanks, Principal Todman. Yeah, no, I, I, I really liked those moments, too. And I feel like um, I'm not the only one who's a sucker for those moments. I feel like that show is just going to be filled with, like, triumphant moments of these kids, like, learning to live together and, like, learning to understand each other's perspectives and backgrounds and... I don't know. Why wouldn't you want to watch that? It's just so sweet. Like call it a win, right? So so Mariah, especially given the fact that you didn't see the original series, is this a show you're going to pay to keep watching? Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> So also this week, Spotify did its thing where it gives you a bunch of stats about what you spent your time listening to over the course of the year. It's Spotify wrapped. Uh, I'm curious what some of the hot tracks were for for each of you. What what have you been listening to this year, Meha? Okay, so let me preface with um, I don't use Spotify a lot. So mine's sort of a combo of both my Amazon music like year in review and Spotify. But for both, the top track was <laughs> Bill Withers' Lovely Day. Aww. And I don't regret that. I think that's the best song I could have played. No, that's a beautiful song. I love it. When I wake up in the morning, love, and the sunlight hurts my eyes, and something without warning, love, bears heavy on my mind. What's on your list, Mariah? A lot of my artists are people I've been listening to for years, which I think shows that just like I have just gone to comfort music this whole totally. this whole year. I have Emily King. Um, she's a singer songwriter who yes. I really like. Did you hear about me? I got off the ground. I stood up when you left me, baby. Look at me now. Look at me now. SZA, Ariana Grande, Tierra Whack, and Janelle Monae are my top five. Really good, strong, solid artists who have an album, an entire album you can just throw on and like yes. listen to the entire album. And like well grounded ladies, too. It <laughs> yeah, like. yeah. So, uh, I'm curious, speaking of music, our next segment is with Andrew Bird, who just released a Christmas album. What's your take on Christmas songs? Mariah, let's start with you. 
I feel like I like Christmas music in like specific settings. So if I'm like decorating my tree, for instance, or sure. wrapping presents, then I really, I'll throw on, you know, Ella Fitzgerald's Christmas album I really like. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I do think I'm opposed to like Christmas music coming on too early in, in like box stores, in like Target or wherever you yeah. are. Mariah, you would hate me if you ran into <laughs> the grocery store. I am absolutely the person that's like, singing Mariah Carey's <laughs> you and dancing down like aisle four at Jewel. <laughs> I would just appreciate you from afar, I think. I don't know if I would hate you. I would just be like, okay. She really I'd be like waving like, hey, Mariah. She, I don't know her. <laughs> never met her. <laughs> oh my God, never. I don't even celebrate Christmas, and I'm like, man, this genre is the best. <laughs> Meha, Mariah, thank you so much. Y'all are the best. Of course. Thank, thank you. Okay, up next, we're going to keep talking about Christmas songs. And obviously, I don't need to tell you that Christmas music is a mood. There's Mariah for sure, but also listen to this ridiculousness. The mood is right. The spirit's up. We're here tonight. And that's enough. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Don't get me wrong, it is catchy as heck, but as our next guest is about to tell us, the holidays can be really complicated even under normal circumstances, let alone during a pandemic, when travel is risky and jobs are precarious and life is hard for pretty much everybody. I'm wanting to hold you and keep you with me. Someone who's really leaning into the it's complicated side of the holiday spirit is Andrew Bird. His new album is called Hark, and it has what might be the world's first and maybe only COVID-related Christmas song on it. Andrew, hey. Thanks for having me. So why make a Christmas album? You know, if you'd asked me a few years ago uh, or told me that I was going to make a Christmas album, I would have thought, oh my God, (laughs) what kind of rut am I in that I need to... Do like a career plateau cash grab of a Christmas album. So what changed? What changed? Your, your career has um, plateaued and you needed a cash grab? No, no, that wasn't it. Good. I just kind of stumbled into this. I, I, uh, I first got, you know, was, I got really obsessed with the Vince Guaraldi trio, Peanuts uh, Christmas album. Oh, so beautiful. And I thought, I'm going to cover a few of these teams just for kicks. And uh, I put together like a jazz band with Jeff Parker on guitar and Alan Hampton on bass and Ted Poor on drums and just thought I'd have some fun with some jazz tunes. And then I thought, uh, I wonder if I could write some lyrics to one of these. Mm-hmm. And then I asked, I started to, and then I, we asked the estate of 
Vince Guaraldi, and they said, no, you can't do that. So <laughs> I wrote some originals, and that was last year. And then the pandemic hit, and I wasn't feeling inspired to write my own songs mm -hmm. at that moment. So I thought, I might as well finish out this, this Christmas album. And then I, I started grabbing tunes like that John Cale, uh, Andalusia, which is not thought of as a Christmas tune. Andalusia, when can I see you? When it's snowing out again From a John wants you louder and softer Closer and dearer than again And then uh, I wrote Christmas in April uh, like you said, it's sort of about the pandemic. And next thing you know, I've got a Christmas album. <laughs> so you mentioned this album has a couple covers. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you a little bit more about why you decided to do covers, because that's not something that's normally part of of your repertoire. And I like you kind of hinted that you it it was too difficult to write your own stuff early on in pandemic days. So covers came more easily to you. Is that? Yeah, I talked to a lot of friends artist friends of mine and they were having a similar uh block on this one because i i filter the world around me and what's happening through my songs and again that question of like does the world need me to write about this right now <laughs> like mm -hmm. or what what the hell do you say about this you know right uh even if it's cloaked in metaphor it, it doesn't matter it's like i just i was just feeling like a lot of people a little at a loss. Yeah. So yeah, when I'm I'm in between uh, song records, you know, the ones I put out every three years, mm -hmm. I do tend to go to covers for uh, to just kind of remind myself what a good song is, and mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of liberating to sing someone else's song that doesn't have all the baggage of your own, and uh, and certainly like a Christmas album is like. It's in its own genre. It's, it's completely its own thing. And that was kind of liberating in a way. I'm dreaming of a Christmas Just like the ones I used to know And then my son, you know, started playing DJ around the house, and he's has better taste in music than any of us. And he's <laughs> playing Lou Reed Transformer and the Kinks and and Bowie, and uh, but he was particularly playing uh, these John Cale songs, and uh, and they were so kind of mysterious but comforting at the same time, and. That's that's a good uh, quality for a Christmas song to have, is. <laughs> it's authentic anyway. For well, sure. we're you know, there are, there's a whole bunch of songs that are super bright and happy, and those are the ones that really get under our skin and maybe rub with our our healthy bad attitude we've adopted to get through them. Mm -hmm. it's, it's to me, it's like you know, the holidays are about inviting the darkness. You know, embracing yeah. them so we can get through it. Yeah. You're not you're not gonna make it if you try to like you know, be chipper through the whole thing. <laughs> it's like the complicated side of the holiday spirit for sure. Yeah. It's interesting to think about like 
what creativity means during a pandemic. Early on in pandemic days, I, I think there was a lot of talk about like, OK, everybody, like you're in isolation. You've got nothing better to do. Now is the time to like write the great American novel to like, you know, do the thing you've been meaning to do this this whole time because you have no excuses. And then I feel like there was a reality that set in shortly thereafter of people just being like, well, I'm just trying to actually get a decent night's sleep. You know, like the right. bar just shifted so quickly, I think. It did. And yeah, there was that question of like, do I cut myself some slack? Right. Uh, and just just kind of wallow in it. And I fell more on the, I, I heard that argument a lot. And I my inclination was just like to get to work. Yeah. But... But as a songwriter, I just simply didn't know what to, what to, how to process this. Yeah. So do you think you have yet? Well, only in that, that Christmas and April song it, where I was pretty much thinking out loud as I'm recording myself. I and mean, that's, that's been the kind of the, uh, I wouldn't say cool thing about it, but the thing about being home, not on tour, not making a record, stuck at home. There are those stages of the acceptance of like, Oh wow, this is going to be this is going to be a while. You know, every day is like a new calibration of what's going to happen. But at the same time, it's like, wow, how often can you say that millions of other people are kind of thinking the same thing you are, or wondering the yeah. same thing? Yeah, that, that doesn't happen much these days. Um, and it's a relatively simple, sentimental song, but it's a very practical question of like, where are we going to be in? eight months when the holidays come around and will we be able to see our loved ones and then isn't this messed up that I'm even singing about this right now yeah so that's the kind of song that I guess you're right I'm wanting to whisper sweet words of comfort in your ears no more sorrow and no You've talked about how early in your career you'd go into isolation from the outside world in order to kind of figure out what your own sound was. And I know the circumstances of the pandemic are totally different, but do you think there was something about pandemic isolation that that ended up sort of yielding the same results? Well, what it's done um, by, by the circumstances is... And something I've always tried to do but couldn't do is make performing and writing a little more like everyday life or make mm-hmm. recording songs a little more like everyday life instead of ceremonious. I booked some time in the studio and now I've got these 12 songs I've been wheedling, wheedling away at for two years and this is the moment that I lay it all down. It's just kind of like a get up in the morning and it's just what you do. Hmm. But you found it you found it rewarding either anyway yeah um i just always wanted it to not be such a big damn deal you know huh it's interesting to think about like the myriad different ways all of us could kind of use the pandemic as a really great excuse to just cut ourselves some slack yeah just slowing down um it's you know your life as a performer is so event driven it's like Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anticipation for the big concert or whatever, and then it's a catharsis, and then you're empty inside, 
and you just need to fill that void and then you do it over again um and that kind of went away there's just no events on the horizon at all mm-hmm. and that's had its upsides well i'm i don't know it seems like so much of all we can really do at this point is find the upside. So I'm glad yeah. you've been able to, and I've, I'm, I'm glad you've made this album to help all of us do it a little more too. I guess that's the idea. Uh, right? Offering some comfort, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Andrew Bird, thank you so much for talking with me. It was really a pleasure to get to know you. Yeah. Same here. Thanks. After the break, we are going to nerd out hard about sprinkles. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Have you ever made a dessert that tastes fantastic but seems to be missing a certain something? Lacking in whimsy, maybe needing to be slightly more fancy free. You know, maybe it could use a pop of color or maybe a pop of like 700 colors. Yes, I am talking about sprinkles. Well, over the last nine months, I'm very delighted to tell you that food reporter Ashley Stevens has collected 50 pages of handwritten notes all about sprinkles. She says it's become her pandemic obsession. And you know that here on Nerdette, we love a good weird obsession. And since sprinkles also seem very seasonally appropriate, Ashley is with us now. Ashley, hey. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to talk to you all about sprinkles. Um, So to start, like, what is the actual definition of a sprinkle? What are we talking about here? Okay, so that's a great question. And we can get into (laughs) sort of the nitty gritty of what separates a sprinkle from its predecessors, because that was one of the interesting things that I found is that we have Mm. pre-sprinkles that uh, were around. But um, most people, it's this kind of oblong, sort of sleek looking totally decorative bit of sugar that is sort of shellacked. So it's long, it's pressed down, and it's shiny, and it's decorative, Um, which I know sounds pretty broad, but that's kind of the working definition of what a sprinkle is. No, I feel like you've actually narrowed it. So so what about the little itty bitty dot guys? Okay, so some people... It's interesting. I was talking with some bakers about this and they're like, oh no, those are sugar pearls. Those aren't sprinkles. <laughs> so when you're talking about a sprinkle, it's that like little squished oval kind of shape is sort of what mm-hmm. we're looking at. Okay. So what's a pre-sprinkle? A pre-sprinkle. Okay. So the first kind of sprinkle-like thing that I saw through history was this thing called a comfit, mm-hmm. which were sweet or spiced candies where you have like dried fruits, nuts, seeds, spices that were lacquered with melted sugar. And those came around in the 15th century. And what was interesting about them is that they weren't just for decoration. They were sort of consumed or purchased for medicinal purposes. So I saw a lot of references to like sucking on them for nausea or headaches. Wow. Then we fast forward to the 18th century. 
mm-hmm. and nonpareils hit the scene. Mm-hmm. And these are much closer to modern sprinkles. And these essentially look like those little sugar pearls. Uh-huh. So these tiny little dots. And you start seeing American cookbooks by the 19th century call for them in recipes. Um, and then we eventually get to modern sprinkles in kind of the 19th century. What inspired you to take this very strange path through history? That's a great question. So it started out as a pretty standard uh, assignment. Uh, this year, we had a bunch of funfetti stuff release into the world. So Coffee Mates released a funfetti flavor coffee creamer. Pillsbury had this funfetti chocolate cake and cupcake mix. I think they released a funfetti cereal this year. So my <laughs> editor at work at Salon was like, hey, could you look into this and see what's behind it? And that kind of led me down a you know, path sort of talking with bakers about the appeal of Funfetti. And you had like Christina Tosi's milk bar birthday cake. And a lot of people talked about nostalgia, which I think was interesting this year. That kind of ties into the sprinkle thing as well. But through my research, I came across a video of how sprinkles were made. A variety of liquid and powdered food colorants are among the ingredients. Which I had never thought about before in my life. Right. Another is shortening. I remember texting somebody. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're printing magic. It was so cool to see. (laughs) And it left me with so many questions. I I just had never thought about um, sprinkles in a really deep way, Um, which is a ridiculous thing to say, but I love food history so much. Um, Have you ever seen a sprinkle being made? No, I haven't. Okay. So Envision this, you've got like this hefty block of sort of sugar laden cornstarch dough that's been paste. Yeah, yeah, like saturated with like vibrant edible dye. So the color (laughs) is there from the jump. And then, yeah, these are pushed through. I don't know, I guess the best way to describe it is like a a Play-Doh Fun Factory kind of extruder. Yes. As the dough falls into the extruder, it's forced through many small holes, emerging as long, narrow strands which fall onto another conveyor. You've got these spaghetti-like strands that sort of emerge, and then they just flop onto a conveyor belt below. Oh, my God. Then those are deposited into essentially what looks like a big clothes dryer. It's probably the best way to describe it. They tumble around a little bit until they are broken into uniform bits, and then they are shellacked, dried, and popped in those containers. The cap bottles are then ready for labeling. Each one bursting with sprinkles of every colour of the rainbow. And brown. I'm not sure they have chocolate in a rainbow. It sounds like those videos are would be extremely satisfying to watch. They're super soothing, I would say. Yeah. It's like some people have like ASMR. Some people watch like those disgusting pimple popping videos. <laughs> I just sit back and I watch sprinkles being made. And that's kind of been my pandemic jam. So... <laughs> So are you familiar with the fact that apparently in England and Australia, they call sprinkles hundreds and thousands? I thought that was so charming. And then there's the Dutch, what is it? Um, Hogelslag, which is a fun word. No. Oh my um, God. Yeah. And then those are specifically, those look like little chocolate sprinkles as well. But the main purpose is you butter a piece of bread and you just like cover it with sprinkles, which sounds like an amazing breakfast, honestly. <laughs> that doesn't sound that different from like a funfetti cereal in terms of nutritional content oh definitely yeah of course (laughs) ashley stevens thank you so much for talking with me about sprinkles that was delightful this was lovely thank you so much 
don't know. I kind of feel like we should have you back sometime to talk about something else just so that you can be like our whimsical dessert correspondent. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. That's going to be my Twitter bio now. That's it for this week. Tune in on Tuesday for a chat with one of my favorite authors, Tana French. In fact, I love her writing so much that I was kind of nervous about interviewing her, but it turns out she's so wonderful that you're just going to like her even more. I can't wait for you to hear it. She is lovely, and her new book, The Searcher, is actually our December book club pick, so check it out. There are also lots of really great ways to keep in touch with us. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, all at Nerdat Podcast. I'm also extra excited about our new Facebook group, which has been a really cool way for listeners to get to connect with each other. You can talk about shows and books and all kinds of stuff that you're into. You can become a member of Nerdat headquarters by going to facebook.com slash groups slash Nerdat HQ. Maybe I'll see you over there. The show is produced by me along with Justin Bull and our amazing intern Isabel Carter who is leaving us. And I'm really, really sad about that. It's like the one downside to 2020 being over is that we won't have Isabel Carter anymore. Isabel, you're great. Thank you so much. Our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak, who isn't going anywhere. Too far? Maybe. All right. Talk to you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.